Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. Welcome to the New Year's Eve edition of Lives Radio Show, which reflects back on a few guests from this past year. And oh, what a year 2020 has been. I spoke with entrepreneurs, a bioethicist, a minister, writers and poets, a comedian, an investigative journalist, artists, musicians, social services professionals, elected officials, a brewer, a grief counselor, and many, many more. It is impossible to capture the full spectrum of this past year's guests. So in this show, I will focus on some poets, writers, and artists who have brought me comfort and inspiration amid the trials of 2020. We will hear about art from Mark Gilbert and readings from Liz Kay, Rebecca Rotout, Sarah McKinstry-Brown, Carson Vaughan, Maritza Estrada, and as a teaser for a forthcoming New Year show, Aisha Sharif. Some other guests will also make an appearance. Most of my conversations with guests this year were recorded virtually via Zoom or Skype. On occasion, the internet audio quality is inconsistent, though I hope nonetheless you enjoy these conversations. In hindsight, given, well, 2020, it is perhaps ironic that shows at the beginning of the year featured improv comedian Will Minan and Brooke Marsek, a sometime van life nomad. It wasn't long before we were all isolating and physically distancing and confronting the reality of the pandemic. In early April, for a two-part show, I spoke via Skype with the artist and health researcher, Dr. Mark Gilbert, who is in his studio at Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia, Canada. Gilbert's interdisciplinary work has expanded and embodies the emergence of clinical portraiture as a field at the intersections of art, ethics, health professions, education, and medicine. In a moment, we'll hear Gilbert talk about the characteristics of portraiture as a practice and its impact upon him and upon the healthcare patient. First, though, Mark Gilbert speaks of the capacity of art to enliven us in this reflection in the wake of the loss of Norman Gilbert, his father, who also was an artist. You know, my dad had just died before Christmas and I went to Glasgow's got an amazing theatre called the Citizens Theatre. It's a sort of repertory theatre. And I went to the Citizens to see their Christmas play and I just thought it was the most amazing thing. And it was just, you know, and that now again, that's what the arts can do is that you're watching, you know, you're watching this this company, this theatre company, all working together with the musicians and the actors and puppetry and so on. And it was just one of the most, you know, that capacity of the arts to do what, that did for me at that moment when I was feeling in it was I left the theatre that night feeling you know a foot taller and stronger but with more feeling you know I felt like I felt felt the world more and that was you know in in a good way in a powerful way and so that's something that I think the arts are able you know when it's done well are able to do in abundance. 
Mark Gilbert's work centers on portraiture of healthcare patients. In a personal, intimate mirroring, here he recounts how his father had captured his mother as she lay dying. And my mum had, had a huge stroke from which we were told that she wasn't going to recover. So as my dad kept vigil with my mum over that, that last week of our life, he then, and I didn't know this until he'd been doing it for about two, three days, he was there day and night, and what he did was carry out a series of drawings of her as she lay unresponsive. And I was gobsmacked that he was doing them. I mean, I really, I didn't quite know what to make of it. And I was kind of intrigued and at the same time frightened. You know, I was frightened of the notion of looking at the drawings. I didn't think it was wrong of him to do them. I mean, but it didn't seem unusual either. He'd painted, he'd drawn and painted her hundreds of times before, so it was perfectly normal. You know, I think there's about 30, 40 drawings in the collection. And then even he, he did one final drawing, the moments that he carried out, the moments after she died. And, uh, and it's a remarkable drawing. You know, one of the great things that the arts do is raise these paradoxes that life have in a, has an abundance. And one of the amazing paradoxes is that he spoke about when he was doing the drawings of my mum with, you know, with my mum as she was lying dying in the hospital. He said it helped him forget what was happening. But at the same time, he said, I never switched on this TV and I never read a book. I just drew her as, I, as he'd done hundreds of times before. And so it is that paradox that I was in one in, in in one way, it was helping him forget and occupying him. At the same time, he was engaging intensely with what was happening. Gilbert talked about some of the profound aspects of the practice of portraiture in a healthcare setting. You know, when you look at a portrait, even a portrait of an individual, and again, I never necessarily realised that, you, you know, when you look at a portrait, it's not just a picture of a person, it's a picture of a person being looked at. So the minute you realise that, I think it becomes a much more, you know, a portrait can become something much more exciting and much more dynamic. The portrait making phase is an important part of it. And you, it's a, it wasn't until I was actually working with patients who were actually unable to speak that I realised not only the, that the silence was something that was comfortable, but the amount of communication that still happens in that silence, you know, that became much more apparent to me when I was then working with Two people while I was working in Omaha, one gentleman who'd had his whole his tongue and voice box and whole lower jaw removed, and so he he was unable to speak. And then I worked with a, a marvellous gentleman who was in the last few months of his life living with um, ALS, with Lou Gehrig's disease. It was a real privilege to be able to spend time with both of them to learn the richness that can still, and the, the amount of communication back and forth that still happens in those silences. I'm listening, I'm listening to the stories that they tell me. They're listening to the stories I tell them. Drawing is a form of listening as well, if you want to put it like that. You know, you're, you're searching. If you're doing the drawing properly, you should be, you know, I'm not just portraying, I'm not just copying somebody. I'm trying to respond to the person and make sure that the marks I make are a genuine, are as genuine and as authentic response to the person in front of me. And out of all that, maintaining and it's a challenge to maintain and sustain that sense of curiosity not to fall back on what you already know or habits and so on but out of that comes a genuine collaboration and the relationship and the reflections that are a fundamental part of the artist's work and the sitter's experience and as a result of that relationship 
what we do together making the pictures, I think we we end up both artist and sitter, we're stronger for it. We're enriched. You know, one of the things I remember thinking when I first started working in this area and working with people who were, you know, well, at that point it was people with hen neck cancer. I was struck by how they carried on living, living that fulfilled active life. So I realized what it let me realize is no matter what happens, what happens to us, we all have a far greater capacity than I think we give ourselves credit for to be able to cope with what happens. I mean, that was something I realized just by watching and by witnessing and spending time with the people I was working with. some, this year renewed our appreciation for what literature can do to help us make sense of the world, or at least an opportunity to engage in more reading. One such person is Gillian Dumas, on the one hand an attorney specialising in sexual abuse cases, and on the other, an avid book reader and commentator. Dumas said this about her current book collection. Yeah, I have a couple thousand books. Some of them are behind me here and um, yeah, that are stacked up that waiting for me to read them. And I I go through, you know, maybe a hundred or so a year and I've got 2000 on my TBR shelves waiting for me to read. So I've got, you know, at least another 20 years worth to read. Knock, Knock wood, I am around long enough to get through them all. So yeah, I, I definitely collect them faster than I can read them. During 2020, I was fortunate to be able to speak with several poets and writers. Liz Kay is a poet and novelist. Her writing touches on themes of grief, parenthood, infidelity, feminism, indulgence and self-image, and gendered social norms. We talked about her novel, Monsters, A Love Story, and her new book of poetry, The Witch Tells the Story and Makes It True. Here is Liz Kay reading some of her poems from that book. I'm going to read a few poems from the uh, from the witch uh, collection. I'm very excited about it. It's a, an illustrated collection that will be coming out this summer titled The Witch Tells the Story and Makes It True. The witch awaits the children. Here is the part that we know by heart. Who's that nibbling, nibbling? and the echo of a child's voice carried above the wind. And you, you are holding your breath now. You are willing them to silence. The door opens. It creaks like a warning. This is where we always begin. The witch entices the children. A lump of sugar in the palm of my hand. I crush it with my thumb and the crystals spill out catch the light like miniature jewels. Open the chest, do you find what you seek? Each pump of the heart is a question, a craving, a refusal to stop wanting. How much sweetness does it take to lure you over the doorstep? I confess you are already beyond rescue, but let us keep the arc of the story. Here is the moment the choice is before you. 
Here are your eager tongues, your sticky fingers. Here is one foot and then another, 20 toes pressed against my floor. The witch explains the problem of gender. I feed the children warm honeyed milk and slices of spice cake. The boy eats so quickly he sickens himself. So like a man can't control his hunger. Sissy weeps and says, I miss my papa. Her tears salt the cake and she cannot eat it. So like a girl can't control her heart. I'm gonna go ahead and read Firewood since you mentioned it. Firewood, the witch explains the nature of men. Mother said I was the best at gathering because I was small and could slip into spaces the sun and rain couldn't reach, where the trees were oldest, beginning to splinter off limbs. I knew it was less about smallness than it was about ease. I'd press only with my fingers until the forest opened to take my body in. I've watched a man force his way, breaking branches and jagged snags, a window torn in the dark heart of the wood. They might have swayed to a lighter touch. Instead, their rough edges caught him at knife point, ripped at his arms, his shirt, his face. This is how a man moves in the world, the friction of him working like a grindstone. He thinks only of what he can wear down. He is always surprised by the blades. And I think I'll read just one more um, that speaks uh, pretty directly to this question of um, gender and power and um, who is allowed to have what kind. The witch imagines a narrative in which the girl saves herself. And what happens to the girl if there is no strong woodsman, or if she is not pretty, or kind, or good? What happens to the girl if she is more like the wolf? What has the girl ever been but something to be taken? Do you think she does not know this? Look how the silver light catches the lines of her body. She is a snare set in the forest. She is ready to spring. I will read you um, the final poem in this collection um, of the witch. It's the only poem uh, written in anyone else's voice. It's called Gretel Introduces Herself. Everyone wants to know about what came after, if we found the witch's treasure and took it home. Can you see there was no home but hers willing to keep us? In that future, his place was a gallows, and mine was a stake or a press or a pit or a lake. My hands have touched her body, they carry her scent. And my brother, stuffing his pockets with pearls and stones. Some habits are hard to break, others break like bones. Kay shared that she loves book clubs. I asked her to explain that. Uh, I think it, it has to do with my understanding of, um, you know, I think reading is as much an art as writing is. I don't think that a work is finished until it has arrived at the reader. So it requires the reader to be complete 
And I'm so interested in how, um, how my work is received. Uh, you know, I want the reader's reaction. I want to know what they got out of it. I want to know if they hated it. Uh, I, I kind of love it when they hate it. <laughs> not, not monsters necessarily, but, but anything. And, you know, I've had that experience as a reader of poetry, um, reading things and, and having the audience just sort of like viscerally unsettled by it, uh, which I think is, you know, fantastic. I want them to be um, engaged. So, you know, for me, probably the worst uh, response is like, you know, three stars. <laughs> it was a book. Um, so I, you know, I want, I want the five stars and I want the one stars. I really love the one stars. So uh, I love having those conversations with readers. And, and, um, and also these characters are real to me. They're real people um, that I, you know, I feel like I'm talking about my friends with other friends, you know, so um, it keeps them alive for me. Author and poet Rebecca Rota spoke with me in August. The theme of readers' reactions to the portrayal of women and gendered social expectations also arose in our conversation. Rota is the author of the award-winning novel Last Night at the Blue Angel. Set against the backdrop of the early 1960s Chicago jazz scene, the book explores the lives and relationship of Naomi, a talented but troubled singer, and Sophia, her precocious 10-year-old daughter, along the way examining motherhood and ambition, relationships, love and sacrifice, and masculinity. Here's Rotur sharing how readers sometimes react to the character Naomi. Women feel very strongly about Naomi. The loud voice, the voice that gets heard in the hundreds of book clubs I've done, lectures, readings, book signings, etc., around that book, the loud voice is pure disapproval because she is a terrible mother, right? And then quietly people come up to me after readings or they send me an email or a Facebook messenger thing saying, I really understood Naomi. I loved her and I understood her and she had the right to sort of go, go at it the way she went at it, you know, but that's always the, the private, again, the underground, there's always two conversations happening with and about women. There's the one that we hear and then there's the big underground conversation that just doesn't often pop to the surface. I'm popping it right now, but. <laughs> Rotat is also the author of the epic poem Understory, which was just released this year. Here, prompted by the moment, I read some stanzas from that work, followed by Rotat reading a selection too. I read the work and found it to be quietly melancholic and honest about life in the world. And it also gave me a sense of the small joys and the hard observed delights amidst the maudlin moments too. Um, so something large and profound and slow over time. You've built in a season too. There's a rhythm to this as well. You and I just before we were recording, were talking about what might be read from this work. Because of what you said, I feel like this is the right time to read it because you were talking about this odyssey and also what we have is enough. 
So in stanza 60 and stanza 61, it says, Nourishment defies gravity, climbs by way of transpirational pull, one molecule after another evaporating from a leaf, vanishing and vanishing so dependably. The next one in line appears to be pulled into place by the vanishing. What mechanism does not have loss built in? If I lie here alone until darkness comes, what animal will your absence call in? To love entire is to lose entire. First, I think, I was no one anyway. Then, I think, but I'm all I have. So I love that. It's always interesting to hear your work in somebody else's voice. It's nice. Is there a piece that feels right to you in this moment, just to share with us? I'm going to read 36. Finally rain. The dogwood, serviceberry, coralberry, viburnum, sumac, every cell of the understory drunk with relief, debauched with relief. 37. A shock of lightning seen accidentally as it usually is, because who can predict? When the difference in ionic voltage becomes too great, a balance must be struck. It takes only a single bolt to connect separately charged fields, lives, and then comes the deep listening, the counting, for the reverberation, the repercussion, the crack. 38. Like a rope thrown over a branch of heaven, I can pull myself up out of any darkness, if not any desire. Only throw the rope. Or at least, this is what you believe. I search for said rope. For a time, we both think the rope is you. Teacher Sarah McKinstry Brown is the author of Cradling Monsoons and, most recently, This Bright Darkness, which explores the complexities of the mother daughter relationship by retelling the myth of the rape of Persephone. Here, McKinstry Brown shares a perspective on the role of the poet in society, as well as the inspiration behind this book of poems. Poems can be the, a great gateway for difficult conversations um, that poets have long, as I said, sort of had their had an ear to the ground, and um, that poets have a responsibility to inhabit a space that is filled with tension, articulating against silence, but also creating space and silence. Persona poems or retelling of an old story, you know, going back to a myth, it can become like a, a wonderful, beautiful, safe space to work through um, current um, anxieties. So what was interesting is I started writing this book in, I'm not sure if I, if I remember the exact year, but it was a good five year, four or five years before the Me Too movement really came to the forefront. And I have a couple of really close friends of mine who are poets and who are women. And I kept saying, I don't know why I keep writing these poems. I just feel like no one's going to care about them. I, you know, it's, it's based on this, old, on this myth. It's, you know, it's this old story. It's about mothers and daughters. And culturally, you know, 
mother and daughter relationships aren't really considered like the stuff of, of great interest or intrigue or, you know, great literature even. And so I, I was really feeling like, why, why am I, why do I keep going back to this project? And so when the Me Too movement took hold and, and the, then the book came out, I did feel like, okay, I was sort of tapping into something that I could feel rising to the surface within me and, and, I, and with the women around me, certainly. And what I'll say about the book is that one of the greatest compliments I got about the collection came from a handful of men who were at a, a reading that I did at a very conservative uh, private college. And the audience was made up of, it was three quarters men. And after I did the reading, a handful of the professors who were there came up to me and, you know, were talking and, and one of them said, I just felt so uncomfortable. It was like a visceral response. He said he could physically feel them in his body. And a lot of these poems, I think, do have that kind of image, imagery in them, that kind of language that forces you to be aware of the body. And when he said that, it occurred to me that that is one of the luxuries, I think, of, of being a man um, or identifying as a, as a man is that there's just much less emphasis on your body you know, how you dress it, its size, how you carry yourself, how you move through the world, right? And in a way, all those things could be the, you know, women have been taught to believe that those are the things that are going to get us to where we need to be. But we've also been told those are the things that are going to, that are going to harm us, right? Or those are the things that, um, you know, the rules are always changing and we need to always be figuring out kind of what those rules are for us in terms of how we're supposed to move through the world in our bodies. And so that was just a very gratifying moment of thinking, okay, if nothing else, if a, if a man has an experience of reading these poems and feeling uncomfortable in their skin or just feeling that sense of like, yes, I am in a body, um, that's something, <laughs> you know, that's a, that's a big thing. And, and I see it in my conversations with my husband as we work to raise two daughters together. There are things that my husband is a, a wonderful man. He's, he's got a, a fantastic heart. He's so empathetic. Um, he's incredibly progressive. And yet all of that sort of intellect and even that heart, it can't quite put you in this, in the physical space of what it means to be a woman and move through the world. How frightening it can be and how difficult it can be to navigate the world as a woman. Here is McKinsey Brown reading a couple of poems from This Bright Darkness with an introduction to what you will hear. I would love to, to read the opening poem and I have a bit of a story behind it as well. The opening poem is called Chorus. After 13 months of searching, the girl's body is found five miles from our house. So the book is told in the voices of Demeter and Persephone alternating, but there are also poems that are labeled as chorus poems. And so traditionally, um, in ancient Greece and ancient Greek theater, the chorus that was the group of voices that filled the gaps in the story and sort of moved things along. And in this collection, I reimagined the chorus as um, groups of flowers speaking, mothers who have miscarried. I mean, it was my way of bringing more contemporary voices and perspectives into the collection. This poem was actually in my first collection of poems, Cradling Monsoons. 
I had the luxury and privilege of attending a writer's conference where I was able to work with the fantastic poet Natasha Trethaway. I said, I've been trying to make this book work for so long. I, I, I've been trying to get it published for so long, but I can tell it's just not right. Something's just not clicking just yet. I said, but I think I have this idea if I open the collection with this poem from my previous collection, I think that'll get me on the path I need to, to get on to, to figure out how to structure this book and what it needs to look like. And she said, well, why don't you read me the, read me the poem? So I read her the poem and she just, without hesitation, as soon as I finished, she snapped her fingers. She said, that's it. And then she heard this little sound. We were outdoors. We were in Vermont in these beautiful Adirondack chairs sitting on the hills of Vermont under a tree. And she heard this noise and she said, what, what is that noise? And I looked over and I said, oh, that's a woodpecker. And she said, well, I'm a firm believer in symbolism. And she said, everything that's happening around us is trying to tell us something and has something to say. So when, when our meeting is over, you need to look up what a woodpecker symbolizes. So I looked it up and I found uh, this little uh, excerpt from a, a Jungian philosophy book. And Carl Jung had described the woodpecker as being a symbol of giving life or finding life and sustenance in something that one had thought was dead or rotted out or sort of a lost cause. It was just what I needed. I, I came back from the writer's conference. I slid this poem as opening poem in the manuscript and started rewriting and reworking. And that's when everything really fell into place. So, so that's one of the reasons this poem is so important to me, but also it was actually written after a um, young woman, uh, sort of to honor a young woman locally who, who uh, disappeared, who was abducted and murdered, uh, Amber Harris. So that's the poem. So chorus, after 13 months of searching, the girl's body is found five miles from our house. Nights we sat down to dinner, interlaced our fingers and recited the Lord's prayer. She was there, taking root, a seed with his seed inside her. Abandoned by the sun, lost in the thick woods of some man's fever, we can't stop looking at our daughters. And when the girl's mother appears on the evening news, distraught but grateful for a body, we understand. From the deep well of our wombs, we draw our daughters up, bring them to our breast, quench a thirst they didn't know they had, saddle them with hunger so they might stay. Let it not be his hands that claimed her. Let it be the tender dirt, the earth slowly awakening to her body as it softens in the sun, preparing her, each pearl of larva working to ease the burden, to release her from the body that caught his gaze. So this is Persephone tells her mother about the moment she and Hades parted. When he placed the coin on my tongue and thumbed my eyelid shut, I softened. I know your world has come undone. You need to believe the truth is a tossed coin, two sides spinning in the sun. You need to believe that we all fall on one side or the other. 
What chasm would you be forced to cross if you saw us lingering at the gates, him holding my gaze as I turned that fruit round and round in my palm? What if the hands that push us into the fire are the same ones that pick us up when we fall? Oh, mother, what choice is there when we have none? Carson Vaughan at the 2019 Omaha Lit Fest, where Vaughan read from his book, Zoo Nebraska, The Dismantling of an American Dream, which I instantly purchased. This literary nonfiction book is a magnificently compelling, moving, emotional roller coaster, ostensibly about the unlikely rise and untimely demise of a zoo in the tiny rural town of Royal in Nebraska. The story, according to this Norfolk Daily News review, encompasses themes that anyone, regardless of their hometown, can relate to by centering on a dream gone disturbingly awry. Zoo Nebraska is at once a hyper-local, yet ageless tale of humanity. Vaughan is a remarkable storyteller, whose insatiable and idiosyncratic curiosity unearths stories ranging across cowboy poetry, ecology, parapsychology, racial justice, and more. Whatever he is writing, Vaughan is always looking for that perspective on something familiar, telling, and universally insightful. No matter what I'm writing about, I like to think that there is some universal theme to be found that everybody can connect to. I don't see the point in writing if you're only writing for like 12 people in a very like esoteric vein, you know. And so even though I do write about some like off-kilter topics, I like to find that universal material within them. And so, you know, with Zoo Nebraska... I thought, you know, I'm not writing this book for the 60 people that live in Royal, but I do hope that what these 60 people in Royal have gone through with this zoo and its unfolding, there will be themes that somebody in Manhattan or Australia or Hong Kong, just universal human themes can connect to. One of the really gratifying things about seeing the book like come out into the world and reading reviews and stuff, a lot of people not from Nebraska at all, did say to me like, oh yeah, you know, like the Jensen family, for example, I know them from my town. You know, <laughs> I know who those people are. I have one of those. This is a, an excerpt that comes from the middle of the Chimp Escape in Royal, Nebraska. So this was on September 10th, 2005. Um, for those who haven't read it, hopefully they will. But um, on that day, a volunteer forgot to lock the chimpanzee cage and all four of them calmly stepped out and ended up running around town. So this is an excerpt from the chapter that covers that whole thing. Anna Shaben and Candace Mackey, both from Orchard, had just left the jewelry party at the home of their friend Stephanie Hughes when Anna noticed the chimp clinging to the zoo's western fence line. She wondered aloud if this was normal, though she didn't slow down. They'd never considered that the animals might escape. For most locals, the zoo had lost its exoticism years ago. So familiar now, it seemed almost normal, the way a Western painter might include the barbed wire fence, as if it had always been there, every bit as natural as the blue grass and the boiling thunderheads above. 
A howling wolf no longer raised eyebrows. A hooting chimpanzee was as common as the noon whistle. The mother of three kids, Anna, had been to the zoo hundreds of times, and so they kept driving, certain a keeper was close behind, that it was just another day at Zoo Nebraska. When they turned west onto the highway where the power lines split and the road opened wide, they found another chimp barreling towards Thirsty's Bar, a dark flash beneath the powder blue sky. There was nothing left to interpret. Anna flipped a U-turn, certain now something had gone awry. She watched in the rearview mirror as the chimp pilfered a plastic chair from the parking lot and let it grind on the asphalt behind him, lazy and loose, like the neighbor's boy, tired of shoveling snow. Above him, the sky, sprawling and sharp and completely unobstructed, the sun spreading itself across the pavement like soft butter, no longer sliced and divvied by the wire crosshatch of a cage or the wooden slats of a shipping crate or the water-stained skylight of the Carson Center. Anna sped back to the zoo. They rushed through the gates and rapped on the office door. They heard the locks slide back. The door cracked ajar. Hurry up, Fayette said. Get in. Inside the admissions building, they joined Fayette and her father and roughly a dozen puzzled customers whom Fayette had ushered inside at Junior's command just moments before. She'd steered them toward the back and away from the windows, and then she'd made three phone calls to 911, to the vet, and to Marvin Young, the zoo board president. And then she lied. She told everyone this had happened before several times, that it was no big deal and would blow over soon, that the director had, would have them corralled and back in the cage in no time flat. I didn't want anyone to panic, she later wrote in a voluntary statement for the state patrol. I talked and calmed the visitors down, and everyone was in good spirits. That was until a furry black hand punched through the ticket window, showering a fistful of glass on the counter. The front door began to shake, the gold handle twisting back and forth. They could hear the chimps, were there two, three, four? hooting and slapping, pounding the tin with fists like rubber mallets. Tufts of hair darted back and forth, visible just above the window pane. The air conditioner began to click and rattle, the chimp's heavy blows ringing inside the metal cage, the whole unit threatening to push through the wall. The families inside gathered tight, parents hugging children to their sides. Anna grabbed Candace and hid in the bathroom. She locked the door. Like Diana, she knew the chimp's strength, knew they, quote, could rip your arms off. If they make it inside and everyone bolts, Anna thought, Hopefully, they'll chase the people who run. Then came the pounding in the back. And how could they tell, really, if it was man or beast, if that anxious butterfly beating was an excited chimpanzee or a desperate visitor, though Fayette would later insist they showed no signs of aggression. For a minute, the building calmed. All still outside the eastern windows, all still out front. And then the racket returned, a pounding on the back door, though it seemed somehow steadier this time. Fayette hesitated, but the knocks kept coming, and when she finally cracked the door, a shaken Diana pushed her way inside. She offloaded her shotgun on a visitor near the door, a man who looked like he'd pulled a trigger before. If they come around the windows, show them that gun, she said. I don't know what else will stop them. They can go through glass in a heartbeat. Just moments later, she found Jimmy Joe standing outside the front door, more electric now than he seemed before, as if in any second he might swing those long, brawny arms behind his head and throw them forward through the glass. She stepped behind the door where he could see her and said as loudly and calmly as she could muster, no, Jimmy, no, Jimmy. And like that, he scampered away. Diana found the tranquilizer gun and the drugs inside the cabinet, and with fingers shaking, nerves sparking like a blown transformer, she began to hastily load the darts and screw in the CO2 cartridge. She tried to, anyhow, but she skipped a step, or she reversed the order, or perhaps she never knew how to handle the gun to begin with. 
Two recent USDA inspection reports had specifically warned that, quote, currently there is no means at Zoo Nebraska to restrain or capture the animals in the event of an emergency. For example, none of the employees knows how to operate the tranquilizer gun. Whatever the case, Diana says, I really think I kind of lost it at that point. Outside, Junior had been circling the building, waiting for Diana to load the darts, trying his best to distract the chimps. When she finally delivered the gun out the back door, Junior sped off but returned just seconds later. The gun wasn't firing, he said. She returned to the office and tried again, this time with guest Dana Ulmer standing over her shoulder, the air thick and stale, the walls closing in. The CO2 cartridge was empty, he told her. She loaded another and passed it back to Junior, still waiting outside. The shrieking seemed farther away now, and for a moment the building settled. The only noise, the flute of wind through the shattered window. She could feel her heart beating against her chest, like a bass drum beneath her ribs, sure it was soon to punch through. Maritza Estrada is a poet currently residing in Tempe as an MFA candidate in creative writing, where she also teaches at Arizona State University and is the poetry editor at Hayden's Ferry Review. In April, we talked about exploring language in poetry, making sense of identity, and creating spaces to make sense of the world. Let's hear from Estrada, who shares first the complicated experience of being Mexican-American and then we'll hear her talk about the psychology of that headspace in creating her poetry. When I flew to Mexico for the first time, and I remember flying over and just seeing like this, like this dark line, there's just something gut-wrenching that made me feel aware of where I stand through these two binaries and being Mexican, but then American, Mexican by ancestors, by blood. American through this paper. And yeah, and, and language is something else that I, th I think a lot about and how there, there are things that can't be said in the English tongue compared to like the Spanish tongue. And for so many reasons, it could be the way that the syntax is working. But there's also just this, this like deep emotionality towards it that, that I, I, I don't think I'll ever figure out until I'm like done existing on this earth. Yes, to make sense of the world, um, to understand, yes, to question, to think of futurity, to dream, to enter headspaces, emotional states that I think sometimes it can be, it can be difficult to enter. And when entering those headspaces, the highs and the lows and the in-betweens, I think there, it requires a lot of patience. Um, a practice of silence, kindness, um, and madness also, and a variety of each. And here is Estrada reading some of her work. Seminar. If to be asked again, where are you from? Give them a gaze, as if looking into my eyes, you see a machete slicing mangoes, guerrillas bordering Guerrero. You are a descendant of muerte, strike. 
Manejo maps. Not a tube down into a throat, not a call to answer green, not a medical bill we cannot pay, not Estella, pigtails and cadence of, okay, mama, okay, papa, without either parent, not a 20-hour drive, the three out of six child time travels without answers, I refute unwitnessing, not one more call, drive, gas pump feeds machine, which advances me, which if no one documents, all is erased. I love you. I'll do one more. This is, um, I'll, I'll read one more. Um, this one's very tender to me. Um, obliterate ombligo and with ombligo means belly button or navel. Um, so I remember visiting Washington, my hometown in Grandview, November 2018. And it had been 14 years since I had last been there when I was like four years old or actually nine from a family trip. And like there were so many parts that I wanted to like see the hospital where I was born. I wanted to, my my grandma and my, my dad actually ended up visiting also. And they showed me like, this is a house where you grew up in. And then this was the other house. And there's just something very tender about having both my grandma and my dad with me and archiving and documenting a lot. Um, so yeah, this is obliterated ombligo. When I returned to where I had left my umbilical cord, I walked foot by foot, attempting to revive before I learned how to breathe. When I say breathe, I mean vivid. I mean the paralysis between alive and half dead inside my mother. Alive when one solitary cry into earth fills the delivery room with lagrimas. Announcement, announcement, time, baby's weight, sex, nationality, parents' nationality. To the receptionist, I said, I was born in this hospital. I need to retrieve my umbilicus. I no longer reside in the mountains, have migrated to the desert, deserted the prairies, desired for 14 years to return to Abolita, whom taught me how to masticate black beans con tortilla. Call me Fantasma, Rover, Chipilona, Mija, or Emi. Walk, caminar, walk, caminar. The receptionist said, good luck. This place is small. In returning from my navel, my first corazón, I closed my eyes and touched walls. Aquí, here, I must have been born. A woman had walked these halls and phoned the future. Every day we speak, two hours behind in the past. And right when I think I'm closer to my belly button, dust storms come from dark. A scorpion refracts in light. I open my palm ready, entiérrate in me. My skin like sand, my body one day beneath glass. Possibly, I'll never understand the cycle. Vivir, mover, regresar, morir. Live, move, return, die. How many exile lives have I lived? Mouth opens for aire, mis ojos.
Aisha Sharif is a Carvey Carnum fellow who resides in Shawnee, Kansas, a suburb that borders Kansas City in Missouri. In many ways, much of her poetry and nonfiction addresses the politics of bordering identities. As an African-American Muslim woman, originally from the South, her work explores how racial, gender, and religious identities align, separate, and blend. Her poem, Vanna White Reconsiders Her Pact with Her Gin, was nominated for a Pushcart Prize in 2019, and her poem, Why I Can Dance Down a Soul Train Line and Still Be Muslim, was nominated in 2015. I spoke with Aisha in November, and although our conversation is yet to air, look out for it in January, because I had such a delightful time, I couldn't resist including this excerpt of Sharif reading one of her poems from her book of poetry, To Keep From Undressing. All right, so this poem is entitled, If My Daughter Does Not Wear Hijab. My daughter's hair grows black. Its curls are thick and wild, the roots soft and wavy, the ends rough and tangled. I could straighten it, smooth it out like my mother did mine, each Saturday by the kitchen stove, tie a scarf over it at 11 years old. Or maybe I will stand in awe of her crown of curls, adorn it with pink bows, let it poof in humidity, let it grow into itself. Her hair holds faith and questions together just as any hijab could. Each kink, her way of wrestling with God. Daughters will always twist themselves anew. I cut my hair, switched between hoodies and hijabs, stopped praying at mega mosques. My daughter will uncover herself too, and I will help her, oil her scalp, her own ablution, make a puffball or plait, French braid or afro. Each style a new supplication, and I will send her off to the world and tell her this too is witness. To end this year, I have to go back to my springtime conversation with Claire and Stephen Bartolome, co-owners of the dining venue Lola's Cafe, located inside the Filmstream's Dundee Theatre building. I am a sucker for a good love story, and here Claire shares that the pathway to love runs through Ecuador. I had to go down to South America to learn a language. Uh, Steve had mentioned to me that he had been to Ecuador twice. And so in, you know, I'm 22, randomly making life decisions. I'm like, I'll, I'll go to Ecuador so I can tell this boy that I'm talking to that I'm going to go to Ecuador. <laughs> Why not? We keep hanging out. I think it's a fantastic idea if he also comes to visit me down in South America. And while we're at it, we'll just travel for two months together. I think we'd been together for like four at this point. Uh, so I show up at the coffee shop that he's working at. Um, can't remember if it was with a check or a plane ticket. <laughs> like, I want you to come to South America. 
I, you know, I had a student loan, so I blew it on my boyfriend's plane ticket. It's such a good idea. Yeah, and so I invited him to come to South America. <laughs> <laughs> Airing on New Year's Eve, this show features some particular 2020 highlights drawn from the world of art, poetry, and creative writing. It is impossible to hear again from every one of the many diverse guests. So for all the 2020 shows you've missed, head over to the podcast at livesradioshow.com. And you can follow the show at Lives Radio Show on Instagram and on Facebook. Listen out for more compelling conversations in the coming year not least those in collaboration with the Omaha Chamber of Commerce, which has underwritten a series of shows to be featured in 2021. To wrap on the way out, here are a few outtakes from the year. The voices you'll hear are Denise Powell and Leanne Pruitt, Matt Wynn, Claire and Stephen Bartolome, Liv Schulman, Christopher Witt, Mark Gilbert, Jason Lauritsen, Micah Yost, David Scott, Will Minan, Greg Tarchek, and Craig Moody. Happy New Year, everyone. This is it. The best, best bit. at last. Yeah. I've been saving the best for last. Okay, so now oh. the real question I want to get to. Okay, just, go for no, it. It's just, just kidding. Oh. Um, <laughs> Yo, yeah. Good work. Thank yeah. you. Well yep. played. That part you, you nailed. I appreciate that. Thank you. you. Game recognized game. That was. <laughs> I mean, the, it sounded fine. <laughs> <laughs> clank, clank. What are the ringing endorsements? Are we gonna... <laughs> so, what about if you say, can we try it right now? Sure. It's okay. I'm going to edit it out. Yeah, you are? No, I'm kidding. Uh-oh. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Okay, so what if you say, um, uh, last night I dreamt I was a puppet of destiny? Last night I dreamt I was a puppet of destiny. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) New technology. Okay. Is it doing anything now? No. Yeah, I didn't really do anything. Okay. And also this chair's less noisy actually, that'll be sitting on the other one. It's awful noisy and squeaking, so this one might be. There we go. Alright. Okay. There we go. I bought like some uh some curtains. Like floor to ceiling curtains. <laughs> hey, you could heckle me. That, that'd be a first. Maybe that would be fun. Yes, that's right. Boo! <laughs> Boo! <laughs> nice shirt, by the way, David. I've got two shirts, summer shirts with collars that I wear on Zoom. <laughs> there was a, a recession at, the, at that time, and it was Alan Greenspan as my corner man in a boxing match, um, telling me to, like, uh, you know, keep my chin up or down, whichever it was would reduce the number of blows I was taking to my chin.
Who doesn't wish I could be a wizard? I wish I all the time. I know, yep. Like, I want to do magic. It's not that big of a wish. <laughs> I don't think so either. <laughs> with a with a moustache like that, you'd be in Slytherin. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Just twirling it constantly. <laughs> yeah, like the evil villain kind of thing. <laughs> I'll cut that bit out. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've got all I need. <laughs> we can just end there. <laughs> oh, that's fine. That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at livesradioshow. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Live's Radio Show and Podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, and more.